0: Just King Things is a podcast where we read the books of Stephen King in publication order. As these are largely horror novels, they often deal with complicated and disturbing topics. A list of content warnings is available in the episode description. Howdy friends and neighbors, and welcome back to just King Things, the show where we read and talk about the books of Stephen King in publication order. I'm Michael, and with me is Cameron.
1: Hey Michael, you ever uh, been up in that uh hill
0: back there? No, I've never I've never gone up in that hill that abuts my property that I just moved into with my family from Chicago. You ever done that? No, not once, not a once. Legend tells there's a candy graveyard up
1: there. <laughs> For candy that
0: died?
1: Candy that gets too old. <laughs> you throw it in the ground. You got to bury it with your bare hands. And it revivifies mm. into delicious Dolby Vision chocolates and Willa Wonka sugar treats. I see but don't delve too deep. Mm -hmm. You can't bring back a whole chocolate bunny, Michael. (laughs) It ain't right. (laughs) I can't believe that. uh, I mean, I don't know. You can't bring back a little nutcracker looking guy made out of only chocolates from 15 years ago, Michael. It's against nature.
0: Sometimes stale is better. Sometimes stale is better. <laughs> I love how you're incapable of like doing the main thing. So it just goes Southern all the time. It's, uh, yeah, it's my, uh, uh, uh,
1: guy from Virginia from whatever we <laughs> recorded the other day. Ah, uh, you should it's... never go into the hills, Michael. <laughs> Cameron Poe is Judd Crandall. Yeah. That's it. That's, I couldn't. I couldn't figure out where I was yeah. uh, doing that accent. But yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that was my my Cameron Poe accent. <laughs> my my darling Amelia, <laughs> you shouldn't go into them hills where the pet cemetery is. <laughs> it gives me the vapors as
0: well. Uh, today we're talking about uh, pet cemetery. 1983. <clears throat> yep. Uh it's our 19th episode. Isn't that special?
1: Oh, what's up with 19? Does that matter?
0: No, not at all. Okay, cool. Yeah. So this is this is another, I think I said this at the end of the last episode, but this is kind of another iconic Stephen King property. hmm One that I was looking forward property. to. So that's yeah. Stephen King. Property. Mm-hmm. You get it? hmm Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Because because they talk about property lines in this book.
1: They talk about property lines. This is a uh this is a book written by someone who has anxiety about buying a second home. Yep. <laughs>
0: I think you, you can personally you, you- you can feel a little bit of of that, right? There's like Mm -hmm. a much more consciousness about property lines and what those things mean. And like, uh, who has the right to like walk across whose property, (laughs) Mm -hmm. like this just, and your new
2: neighbors.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I guess, um, we can do what we normally do and kind of give some general background on here before we get into the book proper. Uh, but uh, apart from all the stuff that I've kind of written in the, the show doc, was there anything that you kind of wanted to talk about, Cameron, anything you wanted to prioritize here in discussing like what Pet Cemetery is, uh, you know, why we remember it or uh, why we don't maybe in some cases? I don't think so. Did we talk about anything before? Are you fishing
1: for a thing that I've said here, or is this a real question?
0: No. uh, Just, like, I want to give you the opportunity to, like, say things uh, kind of here before I get into kind of, like, the background of this book, um, which is pretty interesting. Well, so Steve
1: says, maybe this is a place to just talk about the little uh, introduction or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. What's it
0: called? Yeah, it is an introduction. Oh, oh, so wait, hold on. You have a different edition than me, then. So you have an introduction in there, and that's interesting, because I have, like, a I have, like, a first edition Signet paperback.
3: Don't um, brag.
0: Yeah. Well, it's just, it's what came to me over <laughs> eBay or whatever. Um, sure. Uh, so, yeah, what's what's going on in that introduction?
1: Oh, so you don't have this little Stephen King introduction? No. Thing? It is from 2000. So, you know, I, I think a lot of these got written in, in the year 2000. I don't know why. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Was that after? That's before the accident, right? September 2000 is before the accident?
0: Ugh. No, I think that is just after, because Dreamcatcher is 2002,
1: mm-hmm. maybe 2003. Yeah. yeah, let me, hold on. No, yeah, June 19th, 1999. Yeah. Yeah, so after. So I guess he was hanging out, writing introductions in the hospital. Mm-hmm. I don't really know. Uh, mm-hmm. But his, his uh, the introduction basically just says, hey, um, there's a lot of this stuff in this book that comes out of my real life. Mm-hmm. Basically. So he says, mm-hmm. like, um, uh, he, you know, we've talked about this before, right? Uh, what ends up becoming dance macabre comes out of his lecture notes that he's taking when he goes and teaches at the University of Maine. So he's talking about that in the thing. Mm-hmm. Um, he's talking about how uh, his daughter has a cat or had a cat named Smucky. And mm-hmm. there was all this kind of stuff about Smucky maybe dying. I don't think Sm- Smucky actually died. No, Smucky did die. <laughs> Sorry. Uh-huh. The rip to Smucky. Um, and so that was part of it, you know, this kind of reaction and his feelings about his daughter's cat dying. That mattered. Um, the trucks driving down the road by his like rental house while he was mm-hmm. at the university of Maine. That's the trucks in the book. Um, and, and, he had a neighbor that was basically Judd Crandall it was like a shop owner who was across the street who rented out a room for King to hang out in and write where if you read this novel that would suggest that really Stephen King went across the road to drink every night yeah Um, and uh, yeah That's basically what he says Um, that cemetery is real too right uh says that maybe he does i don't remember him saying that oh no you're right yeah yeah Uh, a path led up through the neighboring field to a little pet cemetery in the woods only the sign on the tree just outside the charming little makeshift graveyard read pet cemetery uh, misspelled this phrase did more than just make it into the book it became the title there were dogs and cats buried up there a few birds and even a goat so yeah the the pet cemetery is real Mm -hmm. Um, but, but the other thing he says here of note in this little introduction is that this book, he wrote it in 79 is when he started it, Mm -hmm. uh, 79 or 80. And he put it in a drawer because Mm -hmm. he thought it was just like beyond the pale.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: It was too much. And Mm -hmm. then, uh, Tabitha King told him to take it out and publish it. So that's, that's what he says. That's what he says. Let me, let me, let me check. Let me make sure that's my, I'm not reading this. Point for point here, but let's see here. Um, do, do, do. So, yeah, uh, I only had. He owed, okay. I had ended my relationship with Doubleday, the publisher of my early books, but I owed them a final novel before accounts could be closed completely. I only had one in hand that wasn't spoken for, and that one was Pet Cemetery. I talked it over with my wife, who was my best counselor when I'm not sure how to proceed, and she told me I should go ahead and publish the book. She thought it was good, awful, but too good not to be read. So uh, I guess uh, a little bit of
0: necessity, a little bit of uh, prodding. So that's an interesting version of that story because uh the the thing that I was reading and sort of you know the poking around I was doing well, and I suppose both of these can be true, right that these can be reconciled um so the situation was this: King had a contract with Doubleday for his earlier books um and the way that that worked is that from the the proceeds or the royalties or what have you um Contractually, he would get paid fifty thousand dollars a year. Right? That was the maximum amount. Anything over that went into like a special account that Doubleday maintained for King. Uh, you know, sort of like scare quotes around that, because really what it meant was that like they just got to hold on to that money and do with it whatever they pleased. Uh Stephen King's tax shelter. <laughs> well, here's the thing, right? Is that uh most authors weren't making enough money for that to matter.
1: Stephen oh, King.
0: Stephen King was an unusual exception, right? Like this was the sort of thing that was sort of like you, you agreed to it when you signed the contract, because it's like, there's no way you're going to be making that much money for them to like keep the overage, right? But that's before Stephen King. So Stephen King leaves Doubleday. He's already gone um, and he's with Viking right now. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the problem is he still is uh, beholden to the contract with Doubleday, making their money off of uh, his earlier books and keeping it in that account. So he wants to sue Doubleday in order to end the contract. His agent is a man named Kirby McCulley. Um, and this guy's really important, and I'll talk about him a little bit more after this. But uh, McCulley, uh he says, actually, you know, it would be a lot easier if instead of suing them, uh, you just published like w- the one last book you had with them under contract. That way the contract ends and then uh, everything resolves and all proceeds go to you or whatever. Um, mm, so does the the account sorry
1: just in the contract when the contract's over, does the the cash come out of the account or just whatever profit comes
0: after that is what you get? Uh, it seems like whatever cash is in the account comes out, right? like there's something okay. about like the the specific account that they're holding all of this uh, revenue in um, like uh, King King gets access to it once he's hit like the five bookmark with with double day. This is
1: a pretty abusive and bad contract. Yeah, I'm going to say just broadly <laughs> it seems
0: bad to me. <laughs> yeah, it seems not great. Um but so uh Macaulay is the one who says like hey you should publish just another book with them and i think maybe he recommends i think he may, might be aware of pet cemetery he might mm-hmm. recommend it because it's um the the other problem right is that we we know king is a guy who has trunk novels all of the trunk novels are coming out as bachman books and they're under contract mm-hmm. with new american library so sort of the one free uh, manuscript that king has is pet cemetery um, and then this is what I say when I say these can be reconciled, right? It's absolutely possible that Macaulay kind of gives this a uh, bit of advice. And then uh, King talks it over with Tabitha because I think it is true that this book is very disturbing personally for, for King um, because it is so close to certain autobiographical elements. Uh, and then it deals like very seriously with the issue of child death, which we've seen before, but not quite in this way. Um, so... Uh yeah, the this thing has been locked away, but then it gets published through Doubleday uh as a way to end this contract. Uh then this is it, it's published in the same month that Stephen King buys uh that radio station that I mentioned near mm-hmm. the end of the Christine episode. Mm-hmm. So that's that's again how how much uh King is kind of making in general. Um so King is out of contract with Doubleday Then He is with Viking. And this book is dedicated to Kirby McCauley. Interesting. I said I would say a little bit more about this guy um, just because I think it is sort of important. Kirby McCulley is one of the most important figures in uh, American horror fiction period, right? In, in some ways, maybe... Uh, Sort of responsible for a lot of uh, like the 80s horror boom or not maybe responsible, Hmm. but like has a hand in a lot of these things because I mean, okay, he's Stephen King's agent thing number one. Pretty big, pretty big deal, right? Uh, unsurprising that uh, the guy who was Stephen King's agent in the '80s uh, had had a big hand in uh, mm-hmm. the horror fiction market.
1: Yeah, Make, making making ten percent of Stephen King's income, circa nineteen eighty five, pretty good.
0: Yeah, uh, I'm gonna say. Uh, so, uh, but this uh, the 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 other thing here is that Macaulay. Uh, was not just some agent who happened to get Stephen King and then made it big. Uh, he was big in the genre space. He comes mm. out of sort of the um, the the weird fantasy fandom. And prior to representing King, he's representing people like uh, Fritz Lieber. Um,
2: uh-huh.
0: uh, he's associated with August Derleth, who is, uh, the founder of Arkham house and one of the people who's very, uh, instrumental in keeping HP Lovecraft's work kind of in the public consciousness. Um, he is on, uh, uh McCulley, that is, is on corresponding terms with, um, oh God, what's his name? Robert Aikman. Um, who's a, a, a British author of weird stories, who is uh, kind of for rarefied tastes, right? Sort of the, the horror writer's horror writer, right? Um, he also represents uh, T.E.D. Klein, who I think I've mentioned before. Uh, and he is the U.S. representative for Ramsey Campbell. When Ramsey Campbell starts getting published in the United States, he's kind of a, another British uh, horror author contemporary with King, Um So, uh, yeah, Macaulay is is kind of a a huge deal because he comes out of kind of this uh, really small, insular genre space, uh, but then happens to also be the person who is Stephen King's agent. Uh, The point is, right, Macaulay is, like, someone who's really important behind the scenes for this genre and for the kind of, like, turns that it takes in the market in the 80s.
1: Hmm. Yeah, the kind of... um, uh not just like the paperback explosion but like the horror fiction hardcover explosion. Yes. Um, yes, you know, 100%. Re, which is kind of like the prestigification
0: of of horror fiction. Mhm. Cool, interesting. Yeah. So without that, uh, we wouldn't have Pet Cemetery because yeah, uh, it's it's a it's a bleak bleak book uh, and we'll probably talk about that best when we talk about it itself
1: oh what is this uh you got a little uh note here yeah that one uh huh What's up with that? Explain that one to me, please.
0: Oh, so I I did not say this uh, on the show because I don't want us to possibly uh, get sued. Just because, but I've no, I made the note because I thought it would be interesting to share with you, Cameron. Mm-hmm. Well, you could say allegedly. Okay, this yes, is, it is truly allegedly. We don't know if it's true or not. So there's uh, this Lisa Rogak book. I think that's how you say her name, Rogak or Rojack. I'm not sure that I've mentioned a little bit before. It's uh, called like Haunted Heart or something, and it's an unauthorized biography of Stephen King. And so one of the things I was doing is I was looking through that sort of um, matching her account of Steve's time teaching at University of Maine and the writing of this book and and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the things that she says in in her uh, biography that is really weird. She alleges that the publication of this book directly led to Stephen King actually increasing his substance abuse. And this is just a thing she says. She doesn't hmm. like tether that claim to anyone saying it or cite anything. It's a very bizarre moment in reading Uh, this book. Like just reading this section of the book, we're just like out of nowhere. She's just like, yeah. And then like this thing getting published was actually so bad for Stephen King that he began to drink and use drugs more. And it was like, wait a minute. What? Uh, who? 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 What? Well, I mean, we do. You
1: know, I don't know about. Yeah. Allegedly. And that seems like some, you know, uh, biography ass, unauthorized biography ass biography writing. Uh, but, uh, the, I, guess, I mean, we do know for a fact that basically every time Stephen King was making any additional amount of money, 1980 to at least maximum overdrive, he was going deeper and deeper into substance abuse. Mm-hmm. So, but maybe not Pet Cemetery uniquely in that case.
0: Yeah. And that was uh, sort of, I mean, obviously like that is, a, this is the thing that's happening during Stephen King's life, but I'm not sure if I would be like. Pet Cemetery getting published is specifically the thing that made it get really bad. Yeah, that would not wouldn't be me. Well, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. So let's summarize
1: this thing. Mm-hmm. You get five sentences to uh, mm-hmm. talk the whole plot of this bad boy. Michael, it's, it's your month this time. It's the five sentence summary.
0: OK. <clears> OK. <throat> Lewis Creed is a doctor who moves his family from Chicago to small town Maine in order to pursue a new job. The creeds consist of Father Lewis, wife Rachel, daughter Ellie, and toddler son Gage. Across the way from them live an elderly manor couple named the Crandalls, And in the woods behind their new house is a pet cemetery. And then behind that pet cemetery is an ancient, evil, Micmac burial ground that brings back to life dead things that are buried in it. It's three. It's three sentences. Mm hmm. Much of the novel is dedicated to how secrets, jealousies, and presuppositions among all of these characters contribute to various conflicts and domestic strife, up until the point that Gage is run over by a truck and dies. Lewis then buries him in the pet cemetery. He comes back as a horrible little goblin and kills everyone except for Ellie and Lewis himself. But then Lewis buries Rachel's body and she comes back and it's implied that she's gonna kill him in the end. Yep. That happens. That's it. That's the book.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: He does become a little goblin. Mm-hmm. Just a little evil little shit. <laughs> <laughs> Uh,
0: this, this book's a wild one. I'll tell you that. Really? Don't you think this is a weird book? I mean, I think it's super weird. Uh, I did not, I guess, uh, to, to put my feelings up front. Um, it's weird. The, my responses to this and Cujo were flipped. If a year ago you had asked me, Michael, what do you think you're going to do with like Cujo and Pet Cemetery? I would have suspected opposite responses, which is that I would have read Cujo and been very mild on it. And I would have read Pet Cemetery and been very impressed. And in fact, what has happened is we read Cujo a couple months ago. I was extremely impressed. Um, and then I read Pet Cemetery, which it's, it felt kind of fine post-Cujo. Cujo kind of raised the bar for me in a way that I wasn't expecting. And this is also, I guess, for the record, like my memory of reading these when I was like a, a tween or teen where I was very meh on Cujo, but I really liked Pet Cemetery. And now that I am, you know, older and wiser in all things of the world, for whatever reason, that's been flipped. hmm Well, it's
1: because when you were a child, you loved all these uh, sex scenes of being <laughs> masturbated in the bathtub. <laughs> Not to get too uh, gross about it here, here on the podcast. (laughs) My God, that was so confusing. There's a lot going on here
0: that is just not in other Stephen King novels so far. Mm -hmm. R.E. Sex. There is, uh, I mean, I say in the show doc, right, that this is kind of like a John Updike novel with monsters, because mm-hmm. so much of it is kind of concerned with the, the sex lives of these two couples <laughs> mm-hmm. and sort of the, the secrets that uh, one accumulates over a lifetime of marriage.
1: Here's a question. You think, Norma, you think Norma really had sex with all those guys?
0: Well, I don't know, or, right? That's or you sort- think Gage is lying. That's sort of that's sort of the brilliant thing about the mm-hmm. way that the the horrible little monster works, right? Is that <laughs> the story that Judd tells about the last time someone got buried in the uh the burial ground and came back and like spoke horrible devil truths to everyone is that they were precisely mm-hmm. horrible devil truths. They were all kind of um things that people sort of suspected and in some cases were things that were like clearly true. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they were all true. He says they are all yeah. true. Well, that's that's the thing is Judd says they are all true, but there is uh, there's like at least one of those where there's just like no way Judd could actually know. Um the one about like the uh wife or what the the other guy's wife, the younger wife who's like sleeping with a guy or something. Yeah, um. but he says everyone knew she was a fast lady around town. Well, he said everyone thought that is what he says. Anyway, no, is- no, I,
1: no. Oh, no. The, the, the specific, the only reason is this really stuck out in my head Uh when I, because I was reading this last night. I was finishing mm-hmm. up. He says the wildest thing about it. I'm not going to be able to find it in like a reasonable amount of time, but uh, he uh he says the wildest thing. He's like. Judd says something to the effect of every man around town would have said that she was free. Uh, a little bit free and left it at that. Uh, and every woman around town would have said that she was loose. Well, I mean,
0: but that's public there's some opinion. Weird, there's,
1: some, there's some like weird manor shit going on here mm-hmm. that I don't get. Uh, but, yeah. No, you're right. At the end of the day, that it, it is a supposition that the little uh, uh, World War II gremlin creature... Mm -hmm. is uh, preying on back in
0: 1945 or whatever. But there are a couple of other things that it says that I think are like, like clearly like an argument. It knows, for instance, that Judd has visited sex workers and it taunts him with that, right? It knows Mm -hmm. something that is true and that Judd can confirm is true. Um, and so when it comes back and it tells Judd that, like, Norma was sleeping with all of his friends, uh, that's what's brilliant about it, right? Is that, like, uh, you know, the devil The devil tells you the truth so he can get you to believe a lie. It's it's that mm-hmm. kind of logic. Like, because we just – we because the other thing is, like, this thing isn't the devil. We don't know what it is, but it's just, like, some hateful being. And it may be operating by that logic or it may just be, like, <laughs> observing truthful statements about all things. Mm-hmm. And if you haven't read Pet Cemetery,
1: and any of this sounds cool to you, you should know that this only happens in the last 50, 40 pages of a 400 page novel.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: It is it is really actually surprising uh, how quickly all of the like supernatural horror crap like happens as a
1: climax. Yeah, it only happens as a climax for the most part. You know, it's really kind of scattered throughout the rest of it, but You know, uh, as Michael was just saying, you know, dear listener, if you have not read this book, the vast majority of the book is dedicated to the interior feelings of Lewis and his family operations. And Mm -hmm. also when his when he and his wife have sex and what's going on with that Mm -hmm. and the very specific things that he is into. Mm hmm like the loofah the loofah yes. glove oh my god and just <laughs> so specific which is not to make look I don't, I don't you know i more support to you uh dear listener if you really enjoy um the the touch of the loofah glove this is not me making fun of that in any kind of way i good on you um uh please keep that to yourself i don't need to know about it uh, do not don't write me about that yeah, do not write in about that. I don't want to hear about it. But uh, the but it's very specifically kind of laid out as a
0: uh, sexual fantasy encounter here in this novel. Yeah, um, I, I actually let's just let's just talk about this since we're yeah. bringing it up because like <laughs> how this works is. So Lewis is a doctor. Uh, the family mm-hmm. is from Chicago, uh, and he has taken a job at a like university hospital or like university health center or something. The infirmary, I think, is yeah. that. Yeah, we would call it like a, health, a student health center is mm-hmm. what we would call it today. Yeah. So that's what he's doing. Um, it's a big, you know, career shift for him. Obviously he's he's moved the whole family. Uh, this is very much that kind of middle-class novel where we're thinking about, you know, career anxieties and so on. That's, that's really what's dominating Lewis at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the first day of classes, which is also, you know, Lewis's first day of real work, a, a young jogger named, uh, a student named, uh, Victor Pascal is hit by a car. And it just so happens that that morning, the infirmary's uh, ambulance got like the, the the wheels were flat or something. There's like it's mentioned as when Lewis comes into work that they don't have the ambulance because it had to get some sort of tune up. Right. So that sets us uh, up. For the, the radiator rests out. That's it. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um. So it just so happens. Right. Things work out that this thing is gone. So they cannot rush Victor Pascal to the to the full hospital. And so uh. He's, like, bloody and, like, uh, you know, th- we get descriptions of, like, the parts of his face that are missing, how his skull is open, and uh, Lewis can see, like, parts of his brain, and, and just, you mm-hmm. know, it's, it's, a, it's a bad, right? And there's blood everywhere. The man is dying in Lewis's arms, like, on the floor of the, the waiting room of the infirmary. And he does, right? He does die, uh, but not before uh, whispering some sort of mysterious warning where he seems to know Lewis's name somehow. But we can box mm-hmm. that up for a moment. And you said something about Pet Cemetery, yeah. too. He yeah. sings all the lyrics to the Ramon song. Yeah, which is weird because it doesn't even exist for another six years. Yeah. Um, really? Oh, because it comes out with the movie. That yes. Man, okay. <laughs> You're like, really? The I just thought the movie came out closer to the book, but no, it comes out. In the the book was actually inspired by the song. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, 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 the birther paradox or whatever. It's <laughs> uh, so so that happens, right? All like that's sort of set up for later. But the real takeaway uh, at at the moment in the narrative is that this was Lewis's first day of work and it was real. uh You know, hard on him, right? Like this, Mm -hmm. this was supposed to be an easier job than working in an actual hospital. And then this is what he deals with on his first day. So he comes home. Rachel, his wife, meets him in the doorway wearing nothing but his favorite pair of lingerie. Tells him Mm -hmm. that she sent the kids uh, over to the neighbors for the evening. She... Takes him in, she feeds him like a full, like, roast beef dinner or some <laughs> I shit. Forgot about, I forgot about that part. <laughs> uh, all while still wearing her lingerie, then takes him upstairs to the bathroom, bathes him, and then uh gives him a hand job with the loofah glove. Yep. And then they have sex also. That's only that's only round one, yeah. 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 There's
1: there is um it's an
0: elaborate fantasy. It is an elaborate fantasy. And it like the entire time I was reading, so obviously I read this. I, I was put doing the math. I probably read this book the first time when I was twelve. Yeah, same. Somewhere in there, 12, 13. Um, and what I remember about that like this this scene jumped out at me for a couple of reasons. One is that like the hand job is described in such a way that I could not figure out that it was a hand job at first. <laughs> um because it's just talking about how she like uh you know, because King is trying to sort of be artful so he doesn't like name genitals. Uh it's just something like she gripped him, uh, and like nothing about like his genitals have has been mentioned before then. So I'm just like, what? Like I thought she was strangling him at first. <laughs> I do like the idea that uh <laughs> the,
1: <laughs> like the alternate version of the book that's just like in every scene, it's like <laughs> And, and Lewis's genitals were just chilling out. Yes, <laughs> they were not being disturbed in any way.
0: But this is this is what I'm getting at, right? It's like I'm 12 years mm-hmm. old and like I don't have sort of the, the like background or capacity to to like get uh, to, to fill in certain things at this point. Right. So I like read this scene, get really confused, have to go back and reread it. And that's when I put it together. And I'm like, that's really weird. But I just sort of like let it go because again, I'm like 12, whatever. Like, I guess mm-hmm. this is how sex works, like whatever adults want to do, I guess. Um, well, it's also uh, I, I'm not going to read
1: it here, but there's a fairly explicit description of edging here. Yes. As well. Yes. Uh huh. Like, that's what she does with the loofah <laughs> glove. Yeah. Um, it just it's so strange to read, like, you know, because I knew this was in here. I didn't remember it specifically, but when it started, I was like, oh, yeah, that's in this book because uh, I read this within the past, like, five years. And uh
0: it it really kind of comes out of nowhere. <laughs> it does. And that's so this time what really like uh, threw me for a loop about it is I had forgotten the context in which it occurs, which is that like, you know, being adult, uh, being an adult now and knowing more stuff about the world and how adult op- uh, relations operate. The idea mm-hmm. of like having my first day of work Watching a man die horribly in my arms and then this being like the the thing that makes me feel better at the end of the day is just like wild. <laughs> Eating a full pan of
1: lasagna <laughs> and then uh, a uh, caressing
0: bath. I don't think yeah. I would
1: want that just personally either. Yeah. Hey, hey, honey,
0: I, I saw you. I heard you saw, watched a man die today while well, I'm wearing your favorite lingerie. Yeah. I heard you went through trauma today. Just Let's just fuck that away.
1: I mean, and look, if that works for you, again, more power to you. But it's pretty wild. And we're not just belaboring this. I mean, I think we are just belaboring it for fun. But in addition to that, that's kind of the, the rhythm of the novel in a broad sense, which is like, uh, bad things happen, but your wife can be there to help you work through it. Mm-hmm. And then, in your hour of need, your wife goes away. Mhm, well, because you kind of send her because her away. dad steals her mhm yeah but but she because she can't be there to
0: deal with it. she's like not strong enough. hmm There's some real misogyny in this novel. I was gonna say that's that's the other thing we're kind of missing here is that um uh Lewis kind of low key resents his wife, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, he thinks she so the the story of Rachel and if you've seen the pet cemetery film uh, or read the book obviously but in the film I feel like this gets kind of uh, uh it becomes kind of an iconic thing. Uh Rachel had a an older sister uh named Zelda who had uh oh god uh spinal, spinal meningitis. meningitis. And it's a you know horrible, painful disease. Uh, and she like Zelda died in an absolutely horrific manner. While Rachel was the only person home alone with her, like her parents were out of the house, so she was a literally like she like ha- was in the house when her ill older sister died, and this has made her, uh, that is Rachel, uh, very uh. St- sort of scared or reluctant to think much about death right she she avoids death uh as a kind of source of anxiety so she doesn't want the kids to know about death she doesn't know she doesn't want Ellie to know about death uh if the cat gets run over in the road and that sort of thing and mm-hmm. Lewis uh finds this uh kind of unwillingness uh on Rachel's part uh it's a it's an endless sorts of source of frustration for him because it's like oh she's she's too caught up in her feelings, and uh, her, she just won't work through it. She has all these hang-ups about death, and she won't understand that it's a natural part of life. Blah 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 blah. What is nice about this is that Lewis is also extremely messed up with regard to death because, like, one of the first things we learn about him, it's literally like the first line of the novel, is that his father died when he was, like, three years old. And he immediately zeroes in on Judd Crandall, this old guy who lives across the street, as, like, oh, this is my, like, new surrogate father. That I can like love and and cherish and don't have to feel bad about my own dad having died. Right, Lewis never uh sort of, Lewis loves to project all of like the death baggage onto Rachel and completely miss the fact that he also has quite a bit of death baggage. Uh, yeah, uh, yes, a huge amount of death baggage.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, daddy issues. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Uh, but no yeah I, the, the you know to kind of uh finish up the um not finish up but the other end of that Rachel conversation yeah it's her kind of I mean you're being very kind about it but but Lewis is written in such a way that he believes his wife is weak is yes. like too weak to deal with reality yes exactly um and uh so he shelters her and so she she becomes it's very much I mean I think you said this earlier but very much like an Updike novel where um, it is not just like the passive misogyny of um, of like just literature in a broad sense, right? Where like men do, uh, do things of action and women do things that are passive and, and men ultimately make decisions and women are kind of uh, written out of those decisions. You know, that that's kind of whatever, like a more passive uh, structural style of misogyny. Whereas something I really associate with people like John Updike and is really, really uh, showing up here is that the uh, that all of that kind of structural stuff is true, and then we have the character's direct thoughts mm-hmm. about why that's necessary. Mm-hmm. Um, and so yeah, Rachel exists, and she's a well drawn character for King. I will say that I think that there is more going on here about Rachel. Uh, than there has been uh, about many women in these novels. Like, that's just, like, I think true. Mm -hmm. But also, at the same time, basically anything, any development around Rachel as a character is met with an encapsulation of that development by Lewis's thoughts that kind of point out how insufficient she is for, like, dealing with the world that they live in, you Mm -hmm. know? She's not really feeling at home in the house. Uh, She's not really able to, like enjoy the company of judd and norma at least at first for Mm -hmm. a long time because she's like not trusting enough um you know she she's a little bit too protective of the kids you know Mm -hmm. sometimes gage goes to bed with them and like she walls off and like her she becomes unavailable it's her and the kids against lewis Mm -hmm. um you know it seems like at every turn there's something else but uh, you know lo and behold uh when lewis needs some like good old-fashioned comfort she's there to get involved in a very baroque sexual encounter yeah um so yeah it's it's a real uh i i don't know if you if you were going to ask me um so far point to a novel that has (laughs) that kind of encapsulates what stephen king's problems with writing women are it's going to be this novel or the shining i think they're both pretty pretty comparable
0: I mean, and uh, to jump off on the Shining point, right, this is uh, in the same way that I said in the Cujo episode, Cujo is a reworking of the Shining. Pet Cemetery is also a reworking of Cujo and the Shining. This is Mm -hmm. uh, a different take on kind of the same broad strokes plot, which is to say uh, here is a family. The family has some kind of problems internal to it. Uh, There is also a supernatural force outside of the family that can like key into those tensions or problems. And it is going to exacerbate them to the point that the family disintegrates.
1: Oh, yeah. And uh, uh, give a little plug here for the bonus episode. You can go to Patreon, patreon.com slash range touch. There's a link in the description down below. You can uh, go to that to listen to our bonus episode where we are checking out the new remake of Pet Cemetery that takes that kind of idea and makes it the whole thing. Yep uh in bizarre and bewildering ways to disastrous effect. Yeah. <laughs> uh yeah, I don't think either of us very much enjoyed that film, but you can check out uh the episode, the mm-hmm. bonus episode. But but yeah, uh yeah, uh, well, so it's interesting you haven't read Dr. Sleep, right? No, I have not. The uh, this is not spoilers. This is just kind of like a, a critical reality of that book. That book uh, retcons the Overlook into being something like a pet cemetery. I um,
0: suspected that was a thing that yeah. would happen.
1: Not, not in like a resurrected kind of way, in the way that Pet Cemetery works, but in a uh, the location and the site itself. You know, something predated it, and that was already in The Shining a little bit. But um, reading through Pet Cemetery this time, thinking about the kind of King Corpus, it's very clear that. Uh, Dr. Sleep is doing some r- uh, wrapping together of mm-hmm. a lot of these early novels mm-hmm. um, and, and kind of putting them in conversation with one another. And I really wonder now, I'll, I'll be curious when we get there, if Ludlow, Maine shows up. Because I know that they spend some time in Maine in that book. Oh, interesting. Uh, but, but I'm not 100% sure. But uh, but yeah, absolutely. So do you, Can we talk a little bit about uh, how the Pet cemetery works?
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely.
1: Because as you said, plot-wise, really not that complicated. Uh, family moves in. Family discovers a pet cemetery. They got a neighbor, uh, Judd. Mm-hmm. All this stuff goes on, and then their cat dies. Mm-hmm. And uh, Judd, in a fit of repayment, um, kindness, being possessed by the devil a little bit, <laughs> um, says, "Hey, hey, buddy! There's there's an even better cemetery behind the pet cemetery." You know where you saw all those goats buried or whatever. There's a better cemetery <laughs> back behind that. It's behind the deadfall, which this is very cool. So I don't know. I you, you want to give a sketch of the pet cemetery and like how you felt about it? Because I, when reading this, I was really impressed with the way the pet cemetery concept um, is written. Even if I'm a little bit disappointed in like the what it depends on, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I think I agree. I don't know what you're going to say, but I think I agree because there is something so weirdly elegant about this situation, if that makes mm-hmm. any sense at all. <laughs> like, so the thing you need to know about the Pet cemetery itself is that it's basically Children of the Corn. Uh, mm-hmm. Right, like, mm-hmm. right, like the the local kids, children in the corn. Yeah, right. The the local yeah. kids in Ludlow all go to this one location in the woods, and they bury their pets. And Lewis is sort of freaked out by the fact that uh, it's not like they they're not laying it out in mimicry of like a Christian cemetery right like a churchyard with like orderly rows uh it's being laid out in kind of this weird expansive uh spiral or sort of like radiating spokes from a a, a circle kind of thing it's very strange but um judd uh gives us kind of the history it's like yeah no like you know local kids have been burying things out here forever like here's where i buried my dog and that sort of thing uh and all of the kids like all all the local kids like maintain it right they come in and they like trim it down they like make sure the path is clear uh this is a thing that is uh we get to see in the remake film although not to any particular effect uh but like you know, Judd talks about how like the local kids will have little uh, burial like funerals, right? Like they'll they'll like have little processions where they go through the woods and like bury things together and so on. So it's very much uh, like Children of the Corn because it mm-hmm. turns out that uh, further up into the woods, there is a Native American burial ground uh, that is the 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 pet cemetery is kind of a weird mirror of it. And it's very strongly implied that. Uh, The children of Ludlow uh, are influenced by whatever force has uh, taken over this burial ground, and they are making kind of like the smaller version of it, right? Like the Pet Cemetery is um, the most consistent way that whatever force is uh, haunting the burial ground can like make its presence known to the world, because as Judd explains... Whatever force uh, took over this burial ground, and uh, I think as he puts it, you know, made the ground go sour, made the the Mm Mi'kmaq stop burying their people up there, Um, uh, it waxes and wanes. There are times when it has more power and less power, uh, and this book takes place during what Judd fears is a time of its uh, growing power. And it turns out he's very much right. Oh, yeah. He's like definitely right. Yeah. So uh, here's a question for you
1: before we keep talking about it because I have uh, some additional thoughts as well. Uh, is this the origination of the 1980s, quote unquote, Indian burial ground? Like in horror. <sighs> because here's the thing. This yes. is something that's always weird to me in the 80s. Um, everyone says that that is what's going on in Poltergeist.
0: Yes. And it isn't. No, it's a, it's a normal, like, contemporary burial ground in Poltergeist.
1: It is just a graveyard. Right. Yeah. It's like, it's it's like just a 19th graveyard century that starts graveyard. In like, yeah. yeah, exactly.
0: Exactly. And there's, like, people from the,
1: the 20s and 30s that show up yeah. in it, right? Like, it is a, like, you know, colonizer's graveyard, as mm-hmm. it were, right? There's no more ancient evil, quote-unquote, there. And so the only other kind of big text that I can, that I can
0: think of... Is Pet Cemetery. So the the original poltergeist is uh released in nineteen eighty two. So yeah, so maybe the yeah. combo of these two things. I think yeah, I think this uh poltergeist then this uh one after the other, I think those get conflated in kind of a popular imaginary. I think that's a really uh persuasive kind of track. Wow. Dang uh
1: the uh okay well that's interesting uh now that we've settled that uh bit of uh american popular culture (laughs) history i there is something so cool about the pet cemetery to me that you know as you were saying right there's this kind of like uh magnetic force that brings people to it to the kind of precipice of it and uh the, this is some of the best Stephen King 80s writing that, you know, the, the writing that's going to come after this in the drawing of the three or in it, um, uh, uh, the talisman, Eyes of the Dragon. I think we're about to do Eyes of the Dragon,
0: right? That's the next book. Yeah, that's the next one. OK,
1: so so this kind of Stephen King is going to get a lot better because he's because uh, he's about to get a lot of practice over the next like three or four years, but a lot better at writing otherworldly stuff. Mm hmm. Um, You know, the mist is going to be here. uh, Skeleton cruise somewhere here Mm -hmm. in the next six books or so. And that, you know, the mist is in that. The mist is entirely about um, another world kind of colonizing uh, the planet, our Mm -hmm. planet. You know, this alien uh, uh, world kind of uh,
0: blooming out onto
1: our own. Literally the inspiration
0: for Half-Life. Oh, is that true? Yeah. (laughs) Like, the Black Mesa incident is just uh, the Mm -hmm. mist. Oh, it is. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, the, uh, but anyway, so,
1: so what happens here, right, is that if you're going to, so, so, uh, Ellis Cat Church, hit by a car, dies Mm -hmm. on the road. Judd says, hey, hey, bro, there's an even more. Scary burial ground, and and uh, Judd is interested in doing that because uh, his wife Norma had had a heart attack, and Lewis was there, and he had saved her life and prevented her from dying. And so, this is a little bit of a uh, uh, your child is about to. I was going to lose something precious to me, my wife, and you saved her. And your child is going to lose something precious to her, her cat Church. And so, I'm going to help you bring that cat back. You know, he doesn't <laughs> say that explicitly, but that ends up being what happens. So, uh, Lewis grabs this cat, and they go up to, to it, and they go to the pet cemetery, and then there's a deadfall. So, like, you know, 8, nine, ten feet tall, this big collapse of trees and brush and all kinds of things like that. Uh, if you haven't seen one before, I think it's probably hard to imagine what a deadfall is. But yeah. it's just a bunch of stuff, and, and I think the term deadfall must come from the fact that it's a death trap. Like, if you try to go through them... You know, it's rotting wood, it's dry and brittle, you can fall through it and get stabbed. It's 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 rough stuff. You don't mm-hmm. want to do that. You you really never want to in a general here's some Woods advice for people who uh if you don't go in the woods. New right segment often. Woods Advice. Woods advice. Here's the first first Woods advice to episode one. Right here, here we go. Don't climb over anything higher than waist tall. Period. Mm-hmm. Just don't do it. Nope. If you can go around. It's just dangerous. And you won't think it's dangerous, but if you're in the woods, far away from someone else, you, you twist that ankle, you break your butt, fall on your butt, break your butt, you're going to be hurting. So just don't do it. Anyway, uh, so they go over this. He's got this corpse with him, and they, and they go over, and they, they uh, you know, Judd's like, hey, uh, if you hear some
0: laughter, don't worry, it's just the loons. Oh, so that's so good. <laughs>
1: <laughs> down Bangor way. <laughs> yeah. And uh if you see any lights don't look at them.
0: <laughs> yep. I love I love uh, all of Judd's little like mm-hmm. yeah, that's, you you may hear things that sound like voices or laughter, but don't worry, it's just the loons. Like
2: Yeah, oh, it's so yeah. good.
1: Don't uh, don't don't look down, and that's part of crossing the Deadfall is you have to believe you can do it and you can just do it. Mhm. Um and we get someone who doesn't believe they can do it late in the book and like he can't do it, it becomes really deadly for him, which is cool. Mhm. But anyway, I I could narrate this whole experience. But basically what happens is that that, uh, they go into something that seems like another world. Mm-hmm. Um they go into what's called Little God Swamp mm-hmm. and there's like footlights around, so like Willow the Wisps mm-hmm. um that are floating around. They hear something massive walking through it. Mist appears out of nowhere. They hear something massive walking through it, mm-hmm. kind of crunching. Uh later on in the novel when Lewis does this the second time when he's burying Gage's body, like a tree gets knocked over. Mm-hmm. So there is a huge, massive, you know, eighty foot tall something walking through the woods. They hear this like pitching screaming and laughter
0: mm-hmm. it's, it's like laughter that ends in like crying sobs yeah yeah it's uh
1: this like absolute mishmash of like uh you know emotion right and uh and then they end up on like a plateau that seems to be above the trees which like physically doesn't make any sense mm-hmm. uh for this area And, uh, you know, then then that's, you know, there's shallow ground there and that's where you buried the stuff, blah, blah, blah. That's less interesting. Oh, there's stone steps carved into this plateau to get up there. And there's 45 of them, Mm -hmm. 45 steps. That's, you know, 45 feet, 46 feet, something like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, No, probably sure. Probably 40 feet. So that's tall. That's like walking very high up. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, you would be able to see this like rounded off or, or flattened off thing that's um, there, right? So there's, you know, all this discussion of like the, the Micmac burial ground and all this kind of stuff, but really it's, uh, you know, they have portaled into some other kind of existence
0: here. Right. Um. It's cool. Right. It's
1: just cool top to bottom.
0: Like, I mean, that scene later on where... um Lewis is going through and carrying, like, Gage's corpse, and he sees that thing walk across the path in front of him, and he, like, sees yeah, it its eyes. yellow eyes. eyes. Right, because yeah. it, like, glances down at him. Um, Like, th- th- I was reading it, and I was like, oh, yeah, no, there's a direct line from this to my father's long, long legs, right?
1: Oh <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, there's a direct line from this to the mist, too, yeah. you know, I, not to spoil that a little bit, but the mist has probably the best segment of that, right, is when... Uh, toward uh, the the end of that when they hear something walking through the mist and they look up and it's like you know something brontosaurus sized mm-hmm. uh you know like the the world is uh, has moved on as mm-hmm. they say mm-hmm. uh into some other shape but yeah i you know this is just like this is
0: an evolution in king too right like there's nothing like this in any of these other books this is like straight up like horror fiction supernatural like uh it, or rather, that's sort of how it's presented, because the other thing that's, you know, very interesting to me is, like, I can note all the things here where he's, like, pulling off a uh, uh, little Lovecraft things, mm-hmm, right? Yeah. Because, yeah. um, like, Lovecraft was all about, uh, you know, if you're walking along the woods at night or walking, walking along a dark road at night in New England and you hear someone talking to you from off the road, like, that's an alien from Pluto, buddy. It's come to steal your brain. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah you don't and yeah they're very explicit don't get off the path yeah (laughs) (laughs) do not leave the path you're having a bad time um (laughs) yeah well something you were talking about supernatural too this is fascinating to me you know because what we've talked about several times is that stephen king when most of these novels that people talk about as horror novels they are horror novels but kind of secondary to that or the engine that makes it go is science fiction uh Stephen King is, has at this point entirely dropped any pretense of like TK research psychic phenomenon science fiction none of that is in this um it, in, but instead some of the storytelling mechanisms that he gets to through TK or whatever in the earlier things all of that sciencey stuff, the explanation stuff, is just wiped out of the way, mm-hmm. and is is it, the engine of it is now just supernatural, right? So Ellie, late in the book, can see all the stuff. I mean, she's shining in the language mm-hmm. of the earlier books. She yeah. Ellie possesses the shining, and she can see like the bad things happening at the end of the novel, all the way in Chicago or wherever she
0: is. Mm-hmm. She is having very specific visions of things that literally happen later.
1: Yeah, she's talking to Victor Pasco mm-hmm. um you know in in the way that um uh not Jody but <laughs> Jody's from a different thing that's from uh Amityville Horror but <laughs> the uh uh his imaginary friend who's him in the future from Oh, oh, Danny Tony. and Tony. Tony, Tony. Yeah. Uh you know, she she's it seems to be talking to Victor Pasco in the same way that that uh, um He might be talking to Tony in that, in in The Shining. And so there's a little bit, but the engine of it, right, is not, there's no discussion of The Shining here. There's no discussion of, like, there's no doctor anywhere here who's, like, and sometimes a child who experiences the death of a sibling might unlock part of their brain, right? Like, (laughs) we can imagine that very easily in an earlier Stephen King book. And instead, what's so good here, and this is, again, I, I love talking about this in these episodes, but here's the payoff for the method of this podcast Stephen King cannot help but explain himself to mm-hmm. his detriment mm-hmm. often, and in the earlier books, it is him over-explaining the science fiction concepts that make the book go. Mm-hmm. In this, it is him over-explaining the supernatural content that makes the book go, because mm-hmm. this man cannot
0: shut the hell up about the Wendigo. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, yeah, uh, and I think the to uh, and I think another element of what you're picking up on here is the fact that Lewis is a very different type of character than we would see in an earlier King novel, or rather he's not very different because in many ways he's just Jack Torrance. Um,
2: mm-hmm. yeah. uh,
0: not but without kind of substance abuse stuff. Um, he, he's not quite as like, uh, openly hateful as Jack could be. Um, but he is presented, uh, unlike a lot of other Kingian protagonists, as like extremely rationalist because he's a doctor, right? I think King is trying to play with um, not Frankenstein, right? But sort of like the popular idea of Frankenstein, uh, uh, the idea of, you know, the the scientifically minded uh, person who uh, sort of punches through to the point where science becomes something else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so, like, the, to uh, more to your point, right, there is absolutely a sort of version of Lewis who gets written in, like, uh, the earlier part of King's career who is like you know, he remembered in med school when he read an article about TK, etc etc et cetera, et cetera. But no, uh, Lewis as a, a medical professional and as a thinker has no time for that. He is, uh, you know, one of the reasons he is so frustrated with Rachel about her, like the way she shelters the children from learning about death is because he does want to sort of hit this point that like, it's just a natural part of life and you just got to deal with it and you just got to soldier on. And no, I don't have any bad feelings about my dad passing away when I was a toddler. Thank you very very much. Uh, so yeah, the, the, there's that. But then, uh, as you also say, uh, the the part where he like sees the Wendigo's face like floating in front of him, and it like makes a makes googly eyes at him, <laughs> and it, like sticks out well, its tongue. <laughs>
1: there's just like so much here that's like Stephen King knows jack shit about anything that's involved here, basically, right? Yeah. Like. Uh, you know, he is making it up uh, as he goes. And so, you know, a Wendigo is a real, um, you know, folktale is maybe not the right word, right? But a uh, uh, belief monster mm-hmm. <laughs> as a broad abstraction. Uh, and it has a real history to it. And, uh you know there's a real um, I don't know there's a real horror writer thing going on with the Windigo monster that look Stephen King's at the beginning of here but it continues to today where it's just like the convenient North American monster yes uh, that like does some stuff and what its like power set is is very confused it's like uh, what the uh, North American Dracula
0: yes yeah
1: it's what it gets treated as and here it, like this this is so beyond the pale that any explanation of it is uh less interesting than what's going on in front of you mm-hmm. where he's like i you know the the wendigo it touches people and they become cannibals that's why gauge becomes a cannibal at the end like he can't in the, that last 40 pages he can't help himself saying that like two or three times yeah he's like the wendigo makes you cannibal did you forget about that the wendigo makes you cannibal right hey everybody it's the middle of the episode that means there's an ad break here it's really an ad break to tell us about our own stuff or tell you about our own stuff because we already know about it uh you can support just king things by going to patreon.com rangedtouch uh where you pay money to to give us <laughs> money in exchange for goods and services <laughs> uh like additional podcasts Uh, So, uh, oh, wait, hold on. So commodities enter into Uh a market relation. Okay, market relation determines value. Uh Uh, That would be what neoclassical economics says. In fact, what happens is that labor uh, alongside uh, machines, a.k.a. what Marx would call dead labor, in collaboration produces a uh, commodity. And we know what that commodity is worth uh, or, you know, its value based on the amount of labor time that goes into it. Now you, you understand labor time by looking at the way that uh, the market introduces relations between commodities and you can kind of backfill from there the the necessary labor time in order to generate them. Okay. So now that we have established uh, some basic Marxism um, mm-hmm.
0: for our ad break,
1: for our ad break, it's critical. I don't know why we don't do that at the beginning of all of them. Mm-hmm. Note note for the future. You go to patreon.com slash range touch in order to get bonus episodes of just King Things in case you're not already listening. And I know for a fact that uh, thousands of you
0: aren't accessing (laughs) our bonus episodes, and I think you should be.
2: (laughs) I (laughs) I see numbers.
0: Thousands of you aren't listening to our bonus episodes. Thousands of you are
1: not listening to our bonus episodes who are listening to this very episode, this very moment. I would suggest... That if you enjoy these and you like hearing us talk about what we talk about on Just King Things, chuck us $5 a month and get these bonus episodes. We're going to be talking about the newest Pet Cemetery remake in the bonus episode. I think we both have some things to say about the outrageousness and strangeness of that adaptation. I think you'll enjoy that. Uh, but we, we have some guests occasionally and we'll be having some more guests coming up in the next couple months. And that's going to be really exciting. And if you give us that $5 a month, you can get access to a bunch of other stuff too, like the range touch monthly, um, podcast where we just kind of talk about whatever, uh, and, uh, all kinds of other things as well. It's awesome five dollars a month you're buying us a cup of coffee a month and uh that really helps us keep these things going it keeps me flush in stephen king (laughs) blu-ray films and uh uh you know uh it keeps michael uh
0: in uh ebay editions of uh pet cemetery And I just want to want to echo, uh, if you have not listened to the bonus episodes, but you have listened to these mainline episodes and you really like it when we get comparative, when we start talking about, like, here's how a Stephen King story works, and here's how this version of this Stephen King story works compared to previous versions, um, we have that sort of conversation constantly on the bonus episodes because that's all adaptation work is, is trying to figure out how to tell the same story twice in, in different ways. Uh, and I think that if you enjoy that aspect of our conversations here, you'll really like it on the bonus apps. So, uh thanks so much. Do it for Steve. Do it for Steve. Back to the episode.
1: Yeah. Uh, anyway, interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh it is a uh I don't know. Uh, it, it 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 fails in the same way that so many Stephen King ideas like get they they have an arc to them, right? Mm-hmm. Where they like build up to a really cool peak. And then he can't quit. Mm-hmm. and So they just kind of keep, they get worse. There, there's like diminishing returns. I really feel that way about the Wendigo here. Where the pit cemetery, awesome. The, the creature in the, in, in the woods, awesome. The explanation of why this is happening, unnecessary. Because yeah. <laughs> we don't need to know. We don't need to know. It, doesn't, it brings your dead kid back to life and he attacks you and kills you. The end. Awesome.
0: It attacks your, your surplus dad and kills him. <laughs> when I said that it was elegant, right, what I was I think what I was getting at is like, um, you know, there is something really interesting about like. Thing number one, here's this pet cemetery. The kids appear to be under some sort of influence. Thing number two, Mm -hmm. here's this other weird, bad burial ground that is like the cemetery behind the cemetery. Uh, And that's the thing that's, uh, you know, doing all of this work on the world. And it happens that when you bury things in the bad cemetery, they come back to life. Uh, And there is just something like... It, it feels completely nonsensical in a very real way, but there is some kind of economy to that in in terms of mm-hmm. like introducing a plot device that is going to allow you to resurrect things but make them evil. Uh, that yes, you are correct. That we don't need it doesn't need to be a windigo. It can just be a graveyard that's bad.
1: Yeah, just bring back graveyards that are bad. That's me. I I guess that's kind of what Poltergeist is. Yeah. This is a bad graveyard. They didn't like being moved. Don't move them.
0: Well, they didn't get Uh, moved. That was the problem. They only moved the headstones.
1: (laughs) That's right. That is what happens. Oh, What a cool shot. I love that shot when they, like, come over the hill and he's like, this is the next expansion or whatever. (laughs) It's just that matte painted of, like, a billion gravestones. Yes. (laughs) It's great. Good stuff. Uh, It was more cost effective. Um Poltergeist is good. Mm -hmm. People should watch Poltergeist. Mm -hmm. It's a great, great film. Uh, The... uh, the, Something else that's interesting here, you know, you're talking about elegance. Um, I think this is probably the best structured Stephen King novel we have read. Mm -hmm. Say more about that. Well, there are resonances here that are just not a thing I would normally associate with King. Um, King novels up to this point are mostly an arrow. Mm Mm-hmm you know by that I mean like you know like a plot of it plot a happens plot b happens plot c happens plot g happens plot event e happens plot event f happens right and it all the way goes down to R or whatever and then it stops but this this book has all these like little you know rich Hornells or uh like loops in it you know these these refrains almost in a way that feels very uncharacteristic of king because right the the the, the book let me let me take one step back. The book I feel is closest to this is The Long Walk, mm. which is very it's very strange for me to say that. Now I only am I coming to this now and, and trying to explain how I feel about it. But but it's because the theme of the book is so well replicated in the writing of the book. You know, it's not mm-hmm. just like hey uh, the government is bad. You know, Firestarter, whatever. The government will do bad things to people. Mer, high concept, right? This, I guess evil graveyard is kind of high concept but there's there's some other stuff going on where there's this consistent theme of things return a second time and they are bad mm-hmm. things occur and when they and they will occur again you know first is tragedy then is evil graveyard mm-hmm. um they and then when they happen the second time they are worse so um you know obviously that's the things that get buried right church is a great little cat he dies he gets uh, buried in the graveyard he returns he is bad mm-hmm um, or not as good, uh, you know. He's like murdering all these animals way more than a cat normally would, even though we know that cats murder lots of animals. Uh, he, you know, he's sour mm-hmm. as it were. Gage gets buried in the in the pet cemetery, returns, and is a murderous little gremlin mm-hmm. uh, with a scalpel. It's like, uh, what's going on? But um, but all these other things are happening too. So like, um, uh, Victor Pascal shows up. Lewis almost hits him with a car. Mm -hmm. Victor Pascal shows up again. He's been hit by a car. Mm -hmm. And it's like this deeply traumatic experience. There are joggers in the novel the first time. Running is the thing. Uh, uh, Lewis not being able to run fast enough is is him not being able to catch Gage.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I, when I was reading the book, I kept pulling out all these like really weird kind of like double resonances like that where, oh, uh, Victor Pascal, uh, shows up and, or, uh, um, church, there's a discussion of church getting in the road, church gets fixed, uh, Victor Pascal dies, church dies. There's like this double maneuver. There's all this like weird foreshadowing of the next event in the event that is right before it. Mm-hmm. Um, that are kind of unaligned or unattached to one another. Lewis doesn't make the connection between these things. No. When they see they all seem to be kind of repetitions of one another. Um the, also like Norma's death and Norma's um heart attack, they are also both preceded by like a less bad event. I, I marked the pages, but I didn't write the notes down, and I probably should have. But it's really weird to me. It it feels so much more um Detailed in that way, you know, mm-hmm. structurally refined than than a King book normally does.
0: Yeah, it's. I, I wrote in the show doc. Uh, this almost feels like King did write with an outline this time, or alternatively, he had such a clear idea of where this story was going that he just didn't need it.
1: Well, maybe this is a place to talk about why he might know where
0: this story is going. Okay, let's. Do you want to talk about the the biographical stuff here? Uh, so the, there's a, an interesting uh, bit of biographical coincidence that Bev Vincent actually points out in his essay uh, for this book on Stephen King visited, uh, By the way, next episode, when we talk about Eyes of the Dragon, it will be the last time I can make use of Vincent's essays because he has not updated uh, or rather, I guess, Richard Chismar has not posted any additional essays uh, since that one. So after that, we're kind of uh, flying free and clear over over the landscape of King. Anyway, uh, Vincent mentions that uh, Steve and Tabitha had recently, like right, at, at about the time that this book was being written, or just before, um, had been dealing with uh, the possibility that their son Owen uh, was hydrocephalic, uh, that and that he would grow up and have an intellectual disability. Um, and there was, a, I mean, this was, you know, sort of a, a, difficult time for them as they were trying to think like, you know, okay, well, what does this mean for us in terms of caregivers and, and sort of like, what is, um, you know, the medical requirements going to be going, for, uh, forward and, and things like that. Uh, and as it happens, um, uh, Owen was, I guess, uh, hydrocephalic, but, uh, not enough that, uh, he had any sort of disability. And so, um, you know, th- like the, the Kings continued on, however, mm-hmm. Um, this little bit of biographical information, and this is not a thing that Vincent points out. Vincent just mentions like, you know, in terms of like thinking about like dangers or like problems that arise with children, this was something that was on the king's mind. This specific bit uh, gets uh, recycled here into the backstory of Gage. Like this is a thing that mm-hmm. uh, uh, Lewis and Rachel have gone through with Gage previously, uh, and then he dies anyway. Yeah, it's another little
1: repetition. Mm-hmm. Uh weirdly enough put out of order though, you know, he cuz he dies before this is revealed to us, but Gage almost dies and then he dies. Mm-hmm. Um uh yeah, yeah, it was really weird cuz you'd already told me this fact I think before we I even started reading the book and I was like, "Oh, that's very interesting." Yeah. Uh, well, I brought it then, up yeah, because just,
0: it's brought up in Vincent's thing like very sort of out of nowhere and I'm like, "That's weird." And then it showed up in the book itself and I'm like, "Oh, holy crap." <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And it just shows up straight
1: up in the book. It's like, yeah, we, you know, believe that he might uh, have hydrocephaly. And uh, the, um, yeah, so he like, it's belabored. It's over several pages. Like, okay, well, here's the procedure we do. And this is why the procedure works. And is that brain surgery? Well, it's minor brain surgery. And there, you know, it really kind of goes through the details of it. Um, And yeah, there's something really interesting going on here about the jump that King makes where, uh, you know, the interpretive leap or like the writerly leap here where it's like the fear of child death becomes this thing of what if your child is different than you expected your child to be? Mm -hmm. There's something really strange and odd going on here about King working through that as well. You know because ultimately, I think that the the lingering question when Lewis raises Gage from the dead it, you know is will I be able to
0: love this child as much as I loved him before? Yes, will he be the same well and Lewis like explicitly wonders to himself what if uh what if Gage does come back and he has an intellectual disability, yeah.
1: And this was the fear, yeah. too, right, around uh, the hydrocephaly mm-hmm. part. I mean, that's the primary question that's asked. Yes. And he he and his wife have this conversation where it's like, do you believe that we could love a child?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, uh, will we institutionalize them, right? I mean, and this is the 80s, very, very, very different uh, relationship to things like uh, intellectual disability and things like that. Um, but, you know, it's, it's ableist in, in its very form and its very concept, but it's interesting that that kind of ableism, um, uh, you know, uh, gets elevated
0: to being kind of the core concern of the end of the novel. Mm-hmm. Uh, what if your child is not the child you thought you had? Mm-hmm. And it's also a parallel to what's going on with, uh, Rachel and Zelda, where Rachel tells mm-hmm. that story yeah. of, um like what happened the day Zelda died, which also just by the way, this is, this is an interesting part of the book too, because, uh, in some ways, it feels like totally out of nowhere. Uh, it feel like Rachel's entire story feels like its own short story that maybe King wrote separately. And then it gets situated in this novel. I don't I'm not saying that that actually happened. Right. But that's almost how it feels is like you could you could pull out kind of Rachel's entire story here. And it could be its own standalone short story about like a really awful thing that happened. Well, uh d- did you notice the how that works?
1: Uh it, this is another king thing. Yeah. This is like a king thing that he that we've already gotten previewed. Does this remind you of any other work that we've read recently? Uh
0: maybe, but I'm not sure what you're getting at. It's the last one of different seasons. Oh, that's right. It's the whatever that method. was called. I'd- yeah the breathing
1: this is the breathing method this is exactly yes. right like setting up the emotional framework then you have the narr- the internal narrator and then she narrates a story to the narrator that we are mm-hmm. are uh, you know experiencing it th- from um yeah this is- it's very odd to see that happen but it's it, it was interesting to see that that he's like um you know he reads peter- Str- it's Straub right her ex- yeah, ghost peter story. Straub yeah yeah so he reads Straub and then does his own Straub, and then that becomes a king thing Because mm-hmm. this is going to happen forever, like people narrating other stories mm-hmm. and you know we experience it through the narrator telling us what the other person told us that's that's going to be showing up constantly mm-hmm. from here until the end of King's career. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought that was really interesting that, that I think you're a hundred percent right. And Stephen King has found a way to like wrap that mm-hmm. within a familiar form. Mm-hmm. You know,
0: he now has a rapper for doing this kind of thing and he could just pop it into any book he wants. Yeah. So, uh, the, the thing about Rachel's story is that she's a literal child when all of this stuff happens. Um, so her, yeah, she's like eight. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And like, uh, it is, Her parents clearly made some bad decisions in terms of being parents if they are leaving like their eight year old daughter caring for their like extremely ill older daughter. But anyway, is it anti-Semitic? I I, I don't know. Right. Because they're out because this is the other thing that's really interesting is that um, Rachel's family is Jewish. And so her parents are out visiting friends for Passover. Yeah. And they
1: leave their dying child. (laughs) their dying 10 year old and their eight year old at home.
0: Yeah, I I don't know I, what's going on with that. It's I mean, I think the intent is that like the uh her parents are her parents are snooty. The other thing we need to uh, put on the yeah, table here yeah. is that uh her uh, Rachel's parents hate Lewis um for reasons that are very strongly implied to be sort of class-based cuz uh Rachel's father uh tries to early in the relationship and this is a thing that makes Lewis resent uh, uh his father-in-law from ever that point forward. Um, uh, He tries to pay Lewis to break up with Rachel. He's like, how much he pulls out his checkbook and he's like, how much do I have to pay you for you to like, leave my daughter alone? Um, And they like stay together. And and Lewis nurses this resentment forever uh, and is constantly interpreting all of his in-laws, uh, comments statements and actions with regard to this idea that they think he's not good enough for their daughter which is what they think mm-hmm. um so anyway uh the, the other thing then right that that makes this sort of parallel to like the um uh Gauge thread, right, is that it's another way that the novel conflates or, like, uh, makes not – doesn't really conflate, maybe, but makes very uh, contiguous uh, death and illness and disability Uh, because Rachel – thinks that she when she tells her story about Zelda's death she talks about how like actively mean and evil Zelda was like Zelda would uh you know like <clears throat> uh urinate or defecate in the bed and she would do it on purpose uh which uh you know may or may not have been true but like there's no sense right there's no sense that Rachel can be like she was a terminally ill 10-year-old with a mobility issue Right, like there, there's like a mm-hmm. way in which like uh Zelda Zelda is literally Rachel's boogeyman, right? She's scared to death that uh, after Rachel dies, that Rachel's going to come back and like give her spinal meningitis. Yeah, yeah, uh, and that's like her deepest, darkest fear. Yes, right. Mm-hmm. And Lewis's response to that and like specifically Lewis's response to like Rachel's kind of fears about like how willfully malevolent her older sister might have been toward her is just like, well, you know how really ill people get. They're very unpleasant. Yeah, <laughs> and it's like, yeah. okay. <laughs> All right, buddy.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. Again, we'll talk about this in the bonus episode, but it's interesting that, how this is kind of blown up. Uh, not destroyed, but kind of inflated mm-hmm. in in the uh, in the remake, the most recent Pet Cemetery film. Good lord, yeah, we'll have a lot to say about that. Yeah. Um. What else is going on in this novel that we cared about? Uh. What do you think about Jud Crandall? Let's yeah, talk about him talk really about briefly Judd. here.
0: Yeah. Because you said I can't. What is it you said? He was. Uh. What did you call him? One of the biggest idiots. Oh, Jud Crandall is like one of the just truly. Dumbest
1: human being Stephen King has ever written I, I think this is what I said uh, or this is how I elaborated on that but This is when I started reading the book, you know a couple of weeks ago uh, Judd Crandall is one of the characters that Stu Redmond hung out with at the beginning of the stand
0: Yeah, yeah
1: just like salt of the earth, but like not smart enough to know anything about the world Mm -hmm. right like a lot of down-home wisdom and i'm not saying that that's not like my judgment that is how he's been written in order to make him do the wormy thing he has
0: to do to make the plot work there is a bit in this novel where judd crandall quotes from memory uh like a 17th century land deed As if this was a because th- that's what the down home people know, Michael. They know where the deeds. Yeah, that's that's what they know. Like, never mind that Jud Crandall, like you know, w- lived through the early century, uh, like the early twentieth century, and has worked on the railroad his entire life. Uh, he's got. Yeah, he's like a hundred. <laughs> he's very old. Yeah, he, he's yeah, he's like eighty. I mean, I think he's like eighty three, right, or something, something like that. Um, But anyway, yeah, he you're right that he is uh, he's kind of uh, a Stephen King character that we've seen before, but always I mean, he's still kind of a a supporting character, but a much more prior to this. He has been a much more uh, minor supporting character than what he is here, where he is quite load bearing.
1: Yeah, I mean, he's the primary secondary character. Yes, (laughs) weirdly enough to say it that way, right? Is not Rachel. It is Judd Crandall. Mm-hmm. Well, because this um, is a novel
0: about uh, the relationships between fathers and sons, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, guys being dudes. Yep. I mean, there's a whole... Uh, this is the beauty of Stephen King. We talked about this in uh, the... Uh, Rita Hayworth in The Shawshank Redemption, we were talking about that. there, And also in The Body, too. Like, he's just... Got, Stephen King can just do The Golden Hour. He can write The Golden Hour better than anyone else. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when he's, when he's writing about Gage and Lewis, just guys being dudes flying a kite, yeah, like that, I, it's saccharin. It's like just pure fucking candy coated. It's also him probably just writing something. Cause we know how Stephen King works. It's probably him just writing something that happened in his life, right? He's got two sons at this point. Um and a daughter, right? He's got three kids. I'm certain that he has had these kind of like great moments of parental connection with children. That's a thing that exists in the world, but not everyone can capture that. Mm-hmm. And he can capture it and then add this kind of like, you know, uh candy coated thing to it that, you know, doesn't melt in your hand. Um, but you know, when you read it, you're like, Oh shit, wow. He's a parent, and he's good at it, and he's, like, having an emotional connection. And he does this thing with Judd, too, where you're like, damn, Judd should have been Lewis's dad. <laughs> yeah. And then I think, why do I care about this? <laughs> like, why? I don't care. Lewis is not real. Why do I care? And yet, it you know, it really works on you, I think. Mm-hmm. It works on me.
0: But, yeah, he, he does all that, and then he's also the one who tells Lewis about the burial ground and and makes everything happen, because the thing, like, the the force in the burial ground gets a hold of him.
1: I think that, yeah, I mean, that's the thing, right? It's like, Judd Crandall ultimately cannot rise above his secondary uh, Kingian character, Kingian stereotype character, which maybe we should, I mean, thinking about more, you know, additional King thing Character types. Old rural guy. Mm hmm. That's one of them. Yes, he is here. Here's a better connection that now I'm just thinking about it. Uh,
0: he is any of those guys in the bar at uh, one for the road. Mm hmm. Yeah. You the know. one who knows who knows the history and will tell you, but is not going to tell you immediately. He's going to tell you when it only when push comes to shove. Mm hmm. And he'll get involved maybe more than he knows he should. Mm hmm. He'll go out
1: looking for that family. Mhm. You know, he'll go up to that burial ground and he'll help you out, but he he knows he shouldn't do it. Mhm. But yeah, he he does that. He's got Norma, yeah. uh radically underwritten character, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, kind of this ghost who kind of lives in the
0: novel a little bit, his wife. Mhm. And she eventually dies and becomes a literal ghost. Mm-hmm. I mean not actually a literal ghost, but you know. Mhm. Uh but yeah, he's a sad old man and then and then he dies shortly thereafter. Because, yeah, what what do you think about the slasher novel that happens at the end of this novel? <laughs> this is I remember. So, again, going back to like reading this when I was 12, I remember being so kind of confused by this. Um, same, same. Be- because yeah. on the one hand. It was I remember it feeling really scary. I don't feel that way as much this time. I don't know why that is. I think I don't know. The, the I think uh, I think Judd really worked on me when I was younger, like as a character, like I knew a lot of like, you know, living in rural Indiana. I knew a lot of old farmers who were kind of like the Judds in my life. Right. Mm-hmm. So there is like a sentimentality <laughs> to that sort of thing. Every
1: Indiana kid's got a couple
0: of Judds. Yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, so there there was something about, you know, him, the way he goes being uh, uh, very effective to me, I thought. Um, but uh, it is it was really weird that and this is not exactly a problem of the novel, um, but a, a question to be asked, which is like, what the hell does the thing from the burial ground want? Like, what's it doing? Um, because it appears to like. Like, take possession of Gage's body, uh, you know, returns to life. And then it's, like, number one priority is fuck up Judd Crandall. (laughs) Like, that is the thing it wants to do. Um, And it's fine, right? It can be, like, some sort of weird unknown thing, like, operating beyond our bounds of of rationality. Um, But when you look at it in the big picture, uh, like, it's just, like it's because Judd like wanted to stop Lewis from doing what Lewis has already done. So, and it knows Judd, it it, it, like recognizes Judd or whatever from when it uh, yelled at him through the, the body of um, Timmy uh, Mm Baderman, who's like the the previous person who got buried. And that was the other thing is like, this is why it didn't make sense to me is that we get this prior story about uh, a world war two veteran, um, who was very, very young, and his father buried him uh, up on the burial ground, and he came back, and he didn't go around murdering everyone. He literally uh, just walked up and down the country roads all day, giving bad vibes to people. <laughs> like, that's what he did. He was mean, Mogan.
1: Yeah. Uh, here, can I, can I give a little uh, speculation here? Yes. I think Judd Crandall did it. I think he killed the critter beforehand, the World War II critter.
0: Oh, okay. <laughs> I, I
1: think that's it. I think uh-huh. I think uh, that Judd Crandall can't bring himself at the end to say, because what happens, right, is they go out to the farmstead, and they're like, hey, people are writing letters to the military saying you're not dead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the, the, and the, and the, the military the is going like, to well,
0: get involved because they're pe- people are yeah. reporting that there's like a, a dead veteran walking around the roads out here.
1: <laughs> well, that's the kind of thing, too, is that that's such a great moment of like, small town fixes small town problems. Yeah. <laughs> uh, because it might have been better <laughs> for the government to come and figure that one out, right? Mm-hmm. Get the shop involved, start <laughs> resurrecting soldiers all the time. Uh, you know, that's a real early 2000 Stephen King idea. Uh, that's not a 1980 Stephen King idea. But um but, yeah, so they go, they all go out, and they're, like, talking to this critter, and they're like, hey, dude, you're supposed to be dead. And then he just starts, like, popping off about, like, all kinds of things that, that we talked about earlier, right? Things that are true, but, like, hidden truths. And they all get scared, and they run away. Mm-hmm. Then three days later, the 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 house that the critter is living in burns down, and we, we learn that his father, who had, like, gone mad living with this creature... Uh, shot it and shot himself, and then burned mm-hmm. the house down. Is the mm-hmm. thing? Mm-hmm. I think the townspeople went went and did that.
0: Interesting. And so the when the thing comes back because it comes back very much in an overlooking mode, mm-hmm. uh, it, it's coming back for Judd because he participated in that. Is your is yeah. your read? Because
1: everyone else is dead.
0: That's true. Judd's,
1: Judd says that explicitly. All these other people are dead, or one is in a nursing home, and everyone else is dead. Yeah. I think is the the thing so
3: yeah I don't know
1: but also if that were true uh Stephen King wouldn't be able to help from telling us that so I mean, that <laughs> might torpedo what I just said yeah. but yeah he it, it's a bizarre little thing so he does that Rachel who has been in Chicago comes back at the last moment only to get
0: murdered yeah. very
1: similar to the end of Cujo very Sheriff Bannerman
0: yes yeah and again a very sort of like what the hell is this thing up to? Like, what does it want? It doesn't really matter because again, uh, I think there's, I, I think the most reasonable way to, to read some of this is that this is a thing that wants to ruin lives and that's what it's mm-hmm. doing. Uh, yeah. uh but <laughs> it's just, Rachel shows up just in time. Like, uh, she's doing kind of the Dick Halloran thing here where she's mm-hmm. trying to get mm-hmm. in. Cause she's, uh, Ellie's had some bad dreams. So she's trying to get back to Ludlow. Um, from Chicago, where they're visiting her parents, and like things keep going wrong to delay her from uh getting to th- getting home in time, basically to stop Lewis. Um, in the similar way that like the Overlook is kind of like pushing out at uh Halloran. Um, but Halloran is much more successful and has some other force on his side, right? There's a couple points where Halloran thinks he's he, he meets other people who have like the shining and he's like, oh, OK, something like something else is like watching out for me. That's not here. There is no other thing. There is only the thing that lives uh, in the burial ground. And it appears to just like keep Rachel away long enough that she can get back in time to immediately get stabbed to death by Gage.
1: Yep. Yep. Yeah, it's really Halloran from the film. Yes. Mm-hmm. More than it's, you know, uh, uh, anything else. But the, uh, yeah, so that happens. And b- the ending, I think, is brilliant. Because mm-hmm. this is the last 40 pages or so. R- the last 100 pages of this book, or 150 pages even, are a slog. The last 150 pages are like Lewis, will they, won't they, burying his dead child. And then uh, Rachel trying to get back to Chicago. Very similar to Cujo in that regard, too, where we get like just a large number of words dedicated to like that guy trying to get back to um, uh, what uh, Castle Rock.
0: Yes.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: From New York or wherever he was. Um, But yeah, what do you think about this last like two or three pages? What happens at the very end?
0: Uh, I mean, this is like, this is a good. Dark ending, right? This is yeah. like, this is like a, a Tales from the Crypt style ending, right?
1: Oh, it is. It uh, And thinking about the relationship in time to, between this and Creepshow, mm-hmm. that makes a lot of sense.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, because... Oh. Lewis, uh, goes, he, he takes out church and, uh, resurrected gauge using like his, you know, morphine or whatever from his doctor's bag. Um, but then he discovers Rachel's corpse and he like has another breakdown and then, uh, the thing from the burial ground appears to kind of like get back at him and he's like, no, I could do this again. And because Rachel hasn't. Like because Rachel's death is – and this is one of the things that actually gets really lost in the film that I think we're going to talk about uh, is the ways that the inconsistency in which the burial ground operates are in fact sort of like goads to keep trying to use the burial ground to get what you want, right? It's because not everything you bury there comes back evil and hateful that you think you might still have a chance at getting something good from it. Yeah. Uh, So, yeah, uh, uh, you know, basically Lewis is just like, oh, it was just I waited too long between Gage dying and burying him, but Rachel just died. So I can take her right back up there and it'll work out this time. And there's this other sort of like tertiary character named Steve, like Masterton, I think, who's like a family friend. Mm hmm. And And he he, becomes like the POV character for all of this. Yeah, he he come. He shows up because uh, Judd's house is burning down. It turns out Lewis Mm -hmm. has like uh, set fire to it. And so all of the neighbors. By the way,
1: Steve rides a motorcycle.
0: (laughs) Yes. Uh huh. (laughs) For some reason. Uh, uh, All the neighbors like are are freaking out because Judd's house is burning down. And Steve shows up and he sees uh, Lewis like disappearing up into the trees, like carrying a body wrapped in a sheet and he goes up there and Lewis uh whose hair is turned entirely white now mm-hmm. much like Nadine after she meets Randall Flag in the stand mm. um uh uh Lewis is just like oh yeah man like come on Steve like we we got to get up there like we got to get going like you know can't wait too long he's he's very sort of you know cr- like clearly lost it right has lost it entirely um and Steve Uh, almost goes with him, right? He can feel like the magnetic pull of the thing. And he knows that there is something up there that's like waiting for them. Uh, But it's just like, it's too much. It's too freaky. And so he turns tail and runs and he never like, you know, thinks about it again. He tries to put it out of his mind. Uh, But then we get uh, the epilogue, which is just like less than a page of Lewis sitting in the like dining room of the house, playing solitaire up until midnight And then he hears the door uh, opening, like he hears the front door open. He he hears footsteps and he hears someone come up behind him. And it's like Rachel's voice was uh, gritty, full of dirt. Darling, it said. And that's how the book ends.
1: Yeah, this epilogue should not be here. I don't think.
0: Yeah, you think that detracts from... uh, steve running like driving his motorcycle off into the distance
1: (laughs) well i don't i i think the way i I think that paying this off i think what should happen is that steve sees lewis go up to the burial ground hears that like cackling laughter or whatever uh and then steve leaves never returns to the town of ludlow again i think Mm -hmm. that's how this should end i think it should end with lewis being consumed up there at the thing yeah which just adds to the mystery, right? Stephen yeah. King can't help but explain himself. Right? I was going to say, it, he's going to yeah. be like, he buries his wife and it goes badly. You can assume and assert what happens from there.
0: Right. It does make a lot more sense because, again, it's like, uh, so this Rachel thing comes back and kills Lewis? And then, I mean, because the other thing is that Steve doesn't, like, learn about all the zombie murders that happened in Ludlow, Maine in the <laughs> ensuing years, right? there, There's nothing open seems to happen because of this. So it does just sort of, I mean, at, at, to, to your point, right, um, it, it does sort of seem like the burial ground is happy just consuming this family and then waiting until the next turn comes around. Yeah. And
1: that explicitly kinda of gets flagged here somewhere, right? Where it's like that Lewis thinks that. He thinks that's what will happen. You know, it will it will happily wait for the next thing to turn around. Uh here's something this is like truly Steve is uneditable at this point. Mm-hmm. Let me read something to you. Um This is the very last page other than the epilogue. Last of the Steve part. <clears throat> the following year But he did not know, could not remember, what such a thought might mean. The following year, he took a job halfway across the country in St. Louis. In the time between his last sight of Lewis Creed and the departure for the Midwest, Steve never went to the town of Ludlow again. Why would you have St. Louis and Louis back-to-back in Mm -hmm. sentences? Just call it Cleveland. (laughs) It really got me. I was like, why would you do this? Is This is truly like Stephen King just banging words out on a typewriter being like, oh, where's it going to move? Where's it going to move? St. Louis. <laughs> and it's like, why would it be St. Louis when you have a character named Lewis <laughs> through the whole book? Just literally pick any other place. Well,
0: it just shows you how Steve, how Steve Masterton never really moved beyond Lewis. you see. Oh, sure, sure. Right? Of course, of course, of course. Um
1: But yeah, anyway, it is an interesting thing here. Uh, I want to make a little pitch here, too, for reading this book or way of interpreting this book. It's quite interesting. Like you were talking about the pet cemetery itself, right? You can go to it multiple times, and sometimes it gives you something really good and beneficial for you, like uh, Judd's dog, which mostly came back good.
0: Yeah, like right. it was, it, it was like, uh, smelled bad, it wasn't as sort of active and happy, but was a functional dog for the most part. Yeah.
1: It, like, backed his mom into a corner one time, and that mm-hmm. was bad. But other than that, basically okay. Uh So it was like a little bad occasionally. And sometimes it gives you like real stinkers, like your murdering child. Mm-hmm. It sounds a lot like uh if you use drugs to write novels. Hmm. As performance-enhancing things, sometimes it gives you great stuff, sometimes it gives you trash, hmm. sometimes it gives you the good experiences, sometimes mm-hmm. it gives you the real bad experiences.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And it, oh, uh, as I think, as Judd puts it, right, uh, it, it'll it'll make you come up with the sweetest-smelling reasons to go back there again. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So
1: I don't know. You know, interesting to think about this uh, through what we know biographically of King, of course. Not everything dead ends in biography. We would never want to assert or assume that. But Stephen King is kind of a person who writes pretty pretty on the sleeve. <laughs> mm-hmm. Being that so much of this book, by his own admission, is biographical. Yes. <laughs> um, so, you know, maybe the themes are biographical as well. Let's do some uh, segments before we're done here. Michael, you want to t- tell me what your favorite kingism is?
0: Your your favorite piece of uh, uh, Stephen Kingery going yeah. on here? Yeah, my favorite piece of my favorite kingism where we talk about our favorite piece of king in writing. Uh, mine for this book shows up on what is in my copy, page 192. This is after Lewis has uh, buried church. In the ground, and Church has come back, and he has—he is different now. He's weird, uh, and he is. Lewis himself is—is is very uncertain about all of this. Um, and this is like just after kind of a nice little Christmas scene. Like the family has had Christmas, and he is. Uh, the other thing that I think should be could be said sort of explicitly here is that this novel is about the secrets that men keep from their families. Um, Whether that's like sexual infidelity, we have a really interesting moment where Lewis mentions uh, briefly mentions having uh, seen a sex worker in Chicago six years ago early on in the book. Uh, And then maybe 20 pages later, you get another detail that he and Rachel have been together for 10 years. So, and that's never, that's never pushed to the fore. We never get more on that, but it's a thing that, that we know you can put that together. Anyway, that's, and this is also how Judd explains like visiting the pet cemetery as the secrets that men keep. So, uh, Mm -hmm. Lewis is like turning all of this over in his mind, like the secret that he is now keeping from his family and sort of like what's happened with this burial ground and church being resurrected. Um, And he starts thinking in uh, Church's voice, right? He's doing the Stephen King thing where a character talks to themselves, but he's doing it by mentally adopting kind of like a voice for his cat. Uh, And this is what it thinks, right? This is what he is saying to himself through like the imagined voice of his cat. Keep me in mind, Dr. Creed. I was alive, and then I was dead, and now I'm alive again. I've made the circuit, and I'm here to tell you that you come out the other side with your purr box broken and a taste for the hunt. I'm here to tell you that a man grows what he can and tends it. Don't forget that, Dr. Creed. I'm part of what your heart will grow now. There's your wife and your daughter and your son, and there's me. Remember the secret and tend your garden well. And just Mm -hmm. what I like about that is uh, a couple of things, right? Sort of the psychology of this, right? Lewis talking to himself and in talking to himself, he makes up an imaginary voice for his cat uh, that actually sounds pretty sinister. It sounds a lot like uh, the monster talking to Tad from the closet in Cujo. Um, it's got kind of a, a Randall flag sort of tone to it, but also as it talks, uh, uh, you know, with the per box and everything kind of this informal, but like sinister way of speaking, it also starts mixing in directly things that Judd has said to Lewis about, you know, a man tends what he can and, you know, the soil of a man's heart is stonier, Lewis and that sort of thing. Um, and I just think it does a really great job. Uh, and I, can, I think King does this pretty often of like, the weird mishmash of like different voices in your head uh, that can like come together as you're trying to work through uh, something you're thinking about. And, and in particular, I think that that's like good atmospheric stuff here.
1: Uh, yeah, because it's also what Victor Pasco says, too, right?
0: Yeah, Victor says some of that stuff, too. In his like scary
1: times. Mm hmm. Uh, the thing I liked. This is not related to anything that we have talked about, but I really it, it it made me laugh so much that I uh, and it is so voicey uh, mm-hmm. in a way that King is good at that I really enjoyed it. This is on one seventy four my copy. During the last two weeks of school, Ellie had picked up a disquieting rumor around kindergarten, to wit, that Santa Claus was really parents. <laughs> <laughs> and that's it's got me so good. There's, Santa, something, there's something almost about- like proto.
0: It's like proto-Twitter, right? Santa Claus is really parents. <laughs> yes. Yeah,
1: there's the, the construction of the sentence, too, right? A disquieting rumor, right? This, this heightened language disquieting mm-hmm. rumor around kindergarten. To wit, right? Like this like, uh-huh. To wit that Santa Claus was really parents. <laughs> uh, you know, this child's voice coming in at the end. I don't know. There's something about it that's just like, this is, uh, no one else would write this. This mm-hmm. is only Stephen King. No, no one else could get away with it. Like, yeah. the, there are things that, that would get edited out of every other human being's book. And because this just does not fit the tone of the book, it doesn't fit with the, anything that's going on. It is grammatically wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and yet, you know, Steve, Steve knows when to be voicey and he knows how to hold on to it. So, you know, now would I keep this if uh, someone fixed the ending of this book? Eh, maybe not. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I might sacrifice this for a better <laughs> ending,
0: but um, I will accept it. Yeah. What in the Kingiverse uh is the segment where we just kind of outline the connections between what we've just read and other works in the Stephen King uh, oeuvre, uh, his sort of like shared universe of places and things. Uh, we've already gestured at, I think, a lot of these, for instance, about the—even I, I, before you mentioned Dr. Sleep, I could feel like the burial ground here was operating as kind of a Neo-overlook— because, um, mm-hmm. like, when G- when Gage comes back, it hollers at uh, Judd in basically the exact same tone that the Overlook hollers at, like, Windy and uh, Halloran.
1: Yeah, yeah, I guess that's true.
0: Yeah, I'm thinking about it. Yeah, it's like, I, I, that's what I mean when it, it's, it's sort of bizarre. Like, it's this, like, weird supernatural extra-dimensional entity, and then it walks, like, takes over the body of a toddler, comes into this old man's house, and it's like, you son of a bitch, I've come to fix you. Yeah, right. Like that's what it's like. <laughs> um, yeah. yes. um there are also explicit mentions of uh Judd, for instance, uh references very obliquely the the events of Cujo. Uh it's a thing that happened in another town that he he kind of mentions. Uh Rachel drives by the town of Jerusalem's lot, or rather a sign uh pointing to it. Uh, and Derry is also mentioned a couple of times. So the key geography here is, uh, B- it, King is revisiting this more and more, right? He's, he's, uh, I've noticed in the past couple of books, like an uptick in the mentions of Derry.
1: Yeah. She has to like travel through Derry. Um, and we're really getting a solidification of like the geography of Stephen King's Maine. Mm hmm. Because there's a lot of talk about like how close Ludlow is to Bangor, Mm -hmm. uh, Derry. Castle Rock, I guess, shows up in this next thing,
0: but I don't know if by name. I don't remember Mm -hmm. the the name Castle Rock. Mm -hmm. And then that brings us to our final segment, Uncle Stevie's mixtape, where we look at all of the songs that were mentioned uh, in the novel and we put them together into a mixtape that Steve has made for us and we review them. Uh, So I, I have the honor of getting started here. This is this is the Ramones novel. Uh, Lewis loves to listen to the Ramones.
1: Yeah, I don't.
0: Yep. I mean, go- good. I guess
1: this is better than the vast majority of music Stephen King listens to. So <laughs>
0: cool. It, and it's uh, it is interesting how uh like the Ramones first showed up in the dead zone, which we read like a year ago now. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, I guess that's true. Uh, And so you can see, right, like Stephen King discovers the Ramones, probably when he's teaching college students, uh, writes this manuscript, and then it gets locked away for several years and then published uh, at this point for, you know, getting out of the contract with Doubleday. So anyway, Mm -hmm. um, the first song is uh, the Ramones Rockaway Beach. Uh, Sure, three stars. This sounds like a Ramones song, which sounds like just about every single other Ramones song.
1: Rock, 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 away, beach. Yep. Rock, 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 and roll high school. <laughs> Other song. Uh, I got uh, CCR's Run Through the Jungle. Mm-hmm. You know, I wrote down two stars on this sheet, but I'm going to give it three. Okay, that makes sense. So this is classic rock. This is some dad rock. Mm-hmm. This was dad rock the minute it came out. <laughs> it
0: was. Mm-hmm. It it created the conditions of its own emergence. <laughs> Uh, Joan Baez, Diamonds and Rust. This song gets four stars because it's about uh, breaking up with Bob Dylan. If it were the Judas Priest cover, I would give it five stars.
1: That's cool. Great. I'm going to give it five. I didn't listen to it. I'm going to give it five stars. Yeah. Breaking up with Bob Dylan sounds great to me. Mm hmm. Uh, I got the Loudon
0: Wainwright, the third track, Dead Skunk. uh, One star. (laughs) I got a uh, shaken Stevens this old house uh this half a star this is awful this is I had to look this guy up cuz I'm like who the hell is this he's well, a, he showed up before right uh I don't know but he's a welsh uh musician uh, but uh-huh. he sings like uh 1950s throwback music, and his career did not take off until the 80s because it was specifically like uh nostalgia music, mm-hmm. and it's just it's the 1980s like um uh, love
1: of the of the 50s. Yes, uh huh. Exactly. I want is that going to come up here? I mean, I guess Christine's a part of that wave, but uh-huh. I am I'm I'm trying to think about are, are there any King novels that are about that specifically, other than you know. I don't think so. Yeah, I don't really miss miss the bus on that one, Steve. He kind of did. I got the Ramones' Blitzkrieg Bop. Four stars. Great, Mm -hmm. all time banger song. Um, They're going in a straight line. Something, something, other thing. Mm
0: -hmm. Blitzkrieg Bop. Great song. Um, The last song. This is a weird one. It's Baby, Please Don't Go by the Animals. However looking into this, I cannot find a version of this. This is a very widely recorded song. I cannot find a version that the animals recorded. The one place I could find them playing it was at a live show within the past uh, 10 years. So they don't appear to have ever released it as a recording. Maybe they did it live sort of consistently when they were touring or something, but it was never playing on the radio, which I'm pretty sure is what it does in this book. So we have a couple of options here. Um, Mm -hmm. One is that uh, this is an alternate universe where the animals did record (laughs) A version of this song which is going to be more plausible the more and more Stephen King we read <laughs> that's true that, that um, I
1: was literally about to say well does anyone drink Nasa law in this book right
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh the other option is that uh Steve misremembered uh, because there was a very popular version of this song recorded by them uh, Van Morrison's band which sort of has a similar sound to the animals um, and like could have happened right in which case I'll give this uh, like three stars because it's pretty good. Um, but you pointed out ACDC also recorded a version, uh, which I just I can't see Steve meaning the ACDC version and accidentally writing the animals. I just don't think that happens.
1: Yeah, I mean, he's going to get that right. Yeah, he's not going to mess that up.
0: Um, That's it. That's yeah. all songs. Yeah, that's it. Uh, So you know join us next time uh in 1 month when we come back and we talk about our next Stephen King novel which is 1984's fantasy uh Eyes of the Dragon.
1: Just a straight up fantasy
0: novel. Yep, written for Naomi, uh King's daughter.
2: Mhm.
1: I am I'm I haven't I haven't revisited this one since uh I was a teenager. Uh all-time favorite. Mm-hmm. No question. Uh, so we'll see if it holds up. I don't know. I haven't reread it in a long time.
0: I despised Uh, it, so... (laughs) Really? I mean, I hate fantasy
1: novels, Cameron. I know. I know you do. Well, we'll see if we can fix you here. Let's see if we can get you going.
0: I Uh, think I'm probably going to be less belligerent about it this time.
1: Really also sets you up for one of the greatest disappointments in Stephen King, although maybe we can talk about that, uh, when we record the episode, but, Mm -hmm. um a real true bummer of the end of the book but uh not in any plot wise way but in like a big broad stephen king way but we'll see what's going on with that um oh gosh uh well i guess uh a thing to note here is that
3: uh sometimes we do it for the world sometimes we do it for steve